Father, we're thankful for your sovereignty that you do control all things, that you work all things after the counsel of your will. We thank you for your word and for what it tells us about your counsels. And we ask tonight that you would enlighten our hearts to the truths of Genesis once again as we probe into the nature of man, ourselves, and the universe that you created around us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight I want to see if we can catch up a little bit. I'm going to start with on page 39 of the notes uh, where we deal with uh, the so-called divine institutions. And um, if you turn in the Bible to uh, Genesis 1, um, 26... Well, better yet, just just turn to Genesis one, uh, one part. The far right. There's some observations that I'd like to go back to the text and make this uh, this evening, um, because in treating these divine institutions, we're still um, talking about the biblical view of man. We spent considerable number of uh, weeks on on who God is, what he's like, and the difference between the creator and the creature. As we said last time, we're now working a new distinction, the distinction between man and nature. And I want to um, emphasize that this distinction, of course, doesn't um, compare with the first distinction we made, the creator-creature distinction, but nevertheless is important for us to understand uh, the rest of the Bible because we, we get sidetracked by the way our society treats this. If, um, again, we think of God and the creation, we're looking at the man-nature distinction right now and how man differs from nature. And we're going to look at things that we didn't last week. Last week we dealt... Uh, with his structure, we dealt with his conscience, we dealt with those characteristics of man that are in analogy with God's attributes. Man's responsibility and choice in analogy with God's sovereignty, man's conscience in analogy with God's holiness, uh, man's sense of love in, in similarity to God's love, and man's uh, knowledge uh, in similarity to God's omniscience. And we have these characteristics because we are made in his image. And that's why we coined that word a theomorphism, a God form. Man is made in the image of God and man alone. So now we want to move to these divine institutions that theologians have called them because these describe man's social structures. And I want to just introduce these with, with this uh, note. These are absolute structures. The, the Where we are going to get deceived in our time, in our society, is it's quite vogue to interpret these things as conventions. So let me uh, right away deal with two vocabulary words. Um, the difference between a convention... And what and how uh, how we're using the word institution? That's the debate. Are these things we're going to discuss the three of them tonight? Are they conventions or are they institutions? The non-Christian world tends to hold that these things are mere conventions, and by a convention we mean something that just is arbitrarily selected. You may put on a green shirt or a red shirt or yellow shirt. That's, a, that's an arbitrary decision. And we all may agree to uh, do some, uh, you know, put the door there and uh, say hi when we come in the door. That's, that's a convention. That's something that we have arbitrarily established. It's not necessarily rooted in the way God made us. So the debate today is whether these that we are going to discuss tonight are conventions arbitrarily selected by different cultures at different times in history, or are they institutions that God himself built into the system, such that 
if man breaks these institutions, there's a price to pay. If they're mere conventions, then there may be, shall we say, friction, there may be disturbances when we move from one convention to another, but there's no real serious penalties involved. On the other hand, if what we're talking about tonight are real institutions, then to violate these means that we violate the structure of how God created us, and there's going to be consequences to pay down the line. Now, when you observe the Genesis text, and we're still working Genesis 1 and 2, believe it or not, the notes that you had passed out tonight are the last of chapter 3, and that's the last of Genesis 1 and 2. We finally will reach there. And oh, by the way, I just want to remind everyone, we will not have a class next week. I'll be on a business trip, and I won't, my plane doesn't get in quick enough to get here Thursday night. So we will not have a class next week. Um... In the observations on the Genesis 1 text, when you look at what verb is, is the, the general picture, rather, of, of God, the first time you see God in this text, what do you see him doing? Well, you see him creating. Well, then, isn't it true, then, we can say that the first image or picture that the Bible presents us of God is as a laboring man, and that what we have in Genesis is the work week, it's the first work week. And isn't it striking, if you've never thought of this before, that the first image of God is as a laborer who is working and producing something. And you'll notice that God, in verse 3, he says, let there be light. Well, let's look at one day, just, just to see the, the sequence of work. In verse 3, God says, let there be light. So there's the worker thinking through what it is he's going to do. He's planning. Then, um, God saw that the light was good. Oh, and, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. There's the action. And notice in verse 4, we have the follow-up. God saw the light was good. God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. That little phrase where you see God saw the light was good is a consequence of labor in that the work of the labor is evaluated. So we have a function here that occurs not first with man, but with God. When God labors, he plans, he does, and he evaluates. He takes pleasure in it. And it's striking that you can go through these days in Genesis and you'll see the pattern again and again. God says, let there be something else. There is something else. And then he saw and it was good. Until you get down to the last action, the end of chapter 1. And notice in verse 31 the adverb that is added. Look carefully at how that verse is structured. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, who's evaluating it? Well, it's God. God is evaluating himself. And he's saying that I, I did a good job here. So there's an evaluative function that's associated with this. And what we want to do now is tie all this together as the archetype of human labor. The first institution we find then is that man is going to pattern this same thing, because Adam's going to do this in a minute here. You have responsible labor. By responsible labor, we mean that a person, the laborer, plans, he chooses a plan, he's responsible to that plan. After he gets the plan, he executes the plan, and then the work and product of his labor is, is evaluated. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, oh, and by the way, before we leave Genesis 1, you'll notice that he says, as we said over and over again, verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. And part of that ruling is then amplified in chapter 2. And it says, uh, verse 15, God put man in the garden to do something. And notice that verse 15 in chapter 2 precedes the fall. 
it's interesting that, the, that labor is not the result of sin. Some people think it is. Now, we'll get into why people think it's a, a result of sin when we get into the, chapter, in the, into the next event, which is the fall. There's a reason for that. But initially, labor was not considered to be a result of sin. Labor was pleasurable. Labor was an expression of a person's creativity. Adam was to put into the garden and to take care of it. There is his dominion in a small little area of the earth, marked out a garden, and he was to take care of that little acreage or however big it was. That was his responsibility, is to take care of it because God told him to take care of it. Then he gave him certain instructions. And then notice in verse 19 and 20, the Lord God formed the beast. He brought him to man to see what man would call them. Man is given the creative room to exercise himself as a laborer. So we call this then, the first divine institution we're going to say is responsible dominion or responsible labor. We hear little about labor today. But yet, this is the first and primary thing we observe in the Genesis text, right from the very start. Responsible labor. Not just labor, but responsible labor. Why do we mean by responsible? Because Adam is evaluated on what it is he labors in. If you look at the notes on page 39, I want to then apply this to an area of life. I think by now you've wondered uh, why I put all these labyrinths in the notes. The reason I do that is because I want to show you that the Genesis text, and all the Bible for that matter, but particularly these fundamental chapters of creation, that these chapters set up a framework for almost every area of life. Now, think of the areas we've thought about so far. We've talked about language. We've talked about math. We've talked a little bit about science. We've talked about philosophy. Uh, we have talked about uh, a number of these areas in the, in, the, in the text. Now, on page 39, what is it we begin to talk about? You might circle this because it may surprise you. We're talking about economics. Here's the origin of economics. Economics, basically, is a study of value the value that the market imputes to a person's products, a productivity. Now, if you look at the quote I have on page 39 at the bottom, that's a Christian economist, Dr. Gary North. don't agree with everything the man says, but he has, has tremendous insights here. And I want you to just follow me for just a few sentences in that quote. Now, some of you are going to go out and study economics. Some of you, as business people, are involved in economics directly in your products, in your business, in your market. Now, let's think about this for a minute as Christians and see how that very thing that we do, that we're involved in, itself comes out of Genesis 1 and 2. The problem of value is central to the science of economics. And this is the question. Is value determined objectively or subjectively? Is the value of some scarce economic resource inherent in the resource, such as gold, for example, is that really inherent in the resource? Or is it derived from the evaluations of acting men? In short, is value intrinsic or imputed? How can we reconcile the fact that something objectively good like the Bible is worth less in a particular market than pornographic literature? The Bible affirms man's ability to impute value, for man is made in the image of God, and God imputes value to his creation. Man cannot make absolute comprehensive value imputations since men are creatures, but they can make value imputa imputations as limited creatures which are valid in God's eyes, and therefore, and before the rebellion of man in the garden, this is what man did. Let me, let me summarize this. The debate in economics and we have to get into the Mosaic Law to see this. The debate in economics is who sets prices. Now, Christians have had a hard time with this over the centuries because even the Puritans, as biblically based as those people were, they had a concept that there was such a thing as a fair market value. And the Puritans went so far as to say that in order to sell or buy produce in this market, the Massachusetts colony, 
that you had to assign a value to your product that they decree as fair value. And it turned out that, uh, excuse me, it was not the Puritans that did this. This was a lesson learned by the pilgrims prior to the Puritans. Very interesting. And they almost starved to death that first winter, in that first year doing this. And they quickly learned that the only way that you can actually any have a value is to let the market set the value. Now, you may disagree with this. As he says here, there are going to be times when, for example, the Bible as literature is downgraded and is a freebie because the market doesn't impute value to the scriptures. Okay, well, we know why that happens. It happens because of men and who their, their diminishing of the word of God and their aberrations. But generally speaking, we say that value is imputed by the buyer and the seller. I mean, one of the biggest markets in the world are the commodities exchanges, the stock exchange. What happens in the commodities and stock exchanges? But buyers and sellers come together by the millions every hour to determine prices. I mean, for a while on Monday and Tuesday, the uh, commodity exchanges and precious metals for the whole Western Hemisphere was shut down because nobody could get into the building. And all around the world, gold prices were not fixed for many, many hours on Monday because the exchanges were down. And it's the only way that gold prices could be set by the comp competition of buying and selling. Well, why do we mention this as part of, of Genesis? For this reason, notice a new vocabulary word has crept into our conversation. And that vocabulary word is impute. I-M-P-U-T-E. Impute. And I want you to observe this, because in the New Testament, you and I both know where that word is used. It's talking about God's evaluation of our sin, God's evaluation of righteousness, God's evaluation of his Son, Jesus Christ, all that. But I want you to see that that valuation that we speak so highly of and means so much to us as Bible-believing Christians in the New Testament has its root here. This is the original source of the idea of imputed. Somebody has to impute value to an object for the object to have value. The object does not have value in and of itself. Precious metal does not have an intrinsic value. It has the value of whatever people impute to it. You don't, if you doubt that and you think gold and silver have inherent value, consider the following scenario. You're on a desert island and you've got a chest worth of gold and you also have loaves of bread. Which one's worth more? Now all of a sudden what happens to the price of gold? If you are trading bread against gold in that situation, which one's got the price? Why is that? Because you are imputing value to that. And you can do that because you're made in God's image. And what we want to go back to Genesis 1 here and see is that when God did work, he produced something, he said it was very good, he looked at his work, he surveyed his craftsmanship, and he gave it value. The value wasn't in it, the value was what he gave to it. And this is what Dr. North is pointing out, is that obviously God gives value to objects and that whether our free markets approximate his value of something. For example, you may be discouraged, you may have put a lot of work in some object. Now that object to you may be worth something, but the market doesn't consider it worthwhile, at least from your point of view. And that's a discouraging situation to be in, to have put a lot of work in something and then no one else values it. Well, the background of that is, is that it's not ultimately what you or the other person values, Ultimately, it goes back to, does God value you and the labor that went into this? The motives that were behind it and so forth. And we come out finally in the end of the Bible with the judgment. So all those ideas that are so precious and dear to us in our salvation start in very mundane, physical, ordinary areas of the Bible. So that's where economics starts. Starts in Genesis 1 with responsible labor, and that's the first divine institution. So we have established then this as the responsibility, meaning it's a judge. That's what that word responsible labor means. It's not just labor. It's labor that will be one day evaluated. And we have said that this is an institution and not a convention. Society around us would have us believe that, well, it's just, just arbitrary. I mean, this is just the way we evolved. No, no. 
Labor is fundamentally related to my being created in God's image. It's a very lofty view of labor. It's one that you hardly ever hear uh, preached at in churches. The result is that we have a very low view in this country of labor. Second divine institution, page 40, we come to the, which was God set up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and that is marriage. God performed the first marriage. Marriage is not a conventional arrangement. And if you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, what woman is called in that verse. We mentioned this last time, but I want to mention it again because I want you to see how all this fits together. These are not separate. You'll notice woman is called something there. She's called a helper. Now, in the notes, I make the point that in the third, fourth paragraph down, in Genesis 2.18, it's not meant to be demeaning, that vocabulary word. The term is used for God himself, and if you hold a place and turn to Exodus 18, you'll see what I mean. Here's the same Hebrew word, and you'll see the context. What we want to do is look at this context because it shows the high value of the word labor. Today, because of the rise of feminism, this is a central passage of hostility and assault, discussion, and all kinds of things. But... In, Genesis, in uh, Exodus 18.4, notice what it says. You see, um, in verse 4, the, man, the other was named Eliezer. Okay, let's take that name apart a minute. Look at it carefully. Eliezer. If you break it up like this, you notice what the first two letters are? E-L. There's the word for God. E, in the end, is the first person possessive. My. My God. And E-Z-E-R is that word used of Eve in Genesis 2. Ezer. My helper. So, that's why this man was named that in, in this particular context over in Exodus. The other was named Eliezer. He said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, God is called an Ezer there, a helper. That's the same term used of Eve, the first woman ever created. Now, in Exodus 18, when we saw Ezer used of God, why was it used for there? Because the people needed help. Well, why did they need help? Because they had a problem. You don't need a helper unless you need some help. So let's think very simply of the picture you get of the second divine institution and let's see if we can connect it with the first one. Let's see if these two aren't related structurally. What do we say the first one was? Responsible labor. Man's mandate was given to subdue the earth. He was given the garden to take care of. That was his project. That was his assignment. Given that fact that the first man had an assignment, the fact that he needed a helper suggests that he could never have finished the assignment without the helper. Now, does this begin to fit? Well, let's see. What this says is that both the man and the woman operating as a team is what accomplishes God's project. And it starts out fundamentally. Here is the first origin, the first social structure. And yet you can take sociology course after sociology course and never touch this. Because marriage is considered to be a late development in the history of mankind. It's a mere social arrangement, a convention, not an institution. We say that's backwards. That marriage goes back to the garden and all other forms of living arrangements are secondary and developed after marriage. Marriage is the original, the rest are counterfeits. And we have the right to say that because we hold the fact that marriage is not a convention, it is an institution designed so by God. And it's a very serious institution because it is related to that first institution. Marriage has its meaning in its productivity. And what it comes out of the marriage 
Not just babies. They come out too. But it's more than that. It's a culture that comes out. It's the produce of this marriage, this team. It is a division of labor, by the way, occurs first here. So we have the second divine institution. Now we move to the third one, page 41. And that is addressed in Genesis 2, in verse 24. The third divine institution. And that's family. Mama bear, papa bear, and baby bear. Okay? That's family. And family is the basic, most fundamental social unit in the scripture. Now, I want to make a point about this. We do not have time in this portion of the framework course to do this. But some, maybe, if I keep going next year, we'll get into the law, the Mosaic law. And I want, I want to take you to some passages that just really are provocative for us because we're not used to doing this. We're used to going out, for example, and buying a car and titling that car to either the husband or the wife, sometimes joint ownership and so on. But we tend to title property in our country to an individual. Now, what is unique about the Mosaic Law is that property wasn't entitled to individuals. It was entitled to families. Land was not held by individuals. Land was held by families. The economic structure, the, in, the basic unit of legal possession was the family. Now, we've come a long way from that. Our basic fundamental unit of possession in our society is the individual. That's the difference. And it's clear in the Mosaic Law Code. And I'll show you where it's really clear is when you get into what is today called inheritance taxes. There are no such thing as inheritance taxes in the Bible. And you know why? Because taxes are supposed to be when uh, you change possession. The gainer of a possession is supposed to pay tax on that. But if property is titled to family, then when the father and the mother die and that property goes to the son or daughter, that's not a change in ownership. So since it's not a change in ownership, there's no taxation. There is no such thing as inheritance taxes in the Bible. Inheritance taxes were, came into our society largely, ironically, through Karl Marx. And he had a reason for it, not some benign revenue-raising function. Inheritance taxes were designed to crush the family. I mean, it was very clear, Karl Marx's reasons for inheritance taxes. So, there are, there are these agenda that operate in back of all these things, and we just have to be kind of wise as serpents. When, we, when harmless as doves, wise as serpents, as Christians living in our world, let's not be naive about these little agendas that go on behind the scenes. But the Bible says that the family is the basic ownership. Now, if you look on page 41, um, on that first full paragraph, note in Genesis 128 that mankind was to populate the world. Right here, we're good, we deal with this problem of overpopulation and birth control and all the rest of the question. In Genesis 128, man was to populate the world, but it was to be done in conjunction with ruling it. Look carefully. Just stop there and look carefully and reread again Genesis 1. 26, 27, 28. Notice all parts of that scripture passage. In verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image and so on, let them rule. What's the first thing mentioned in that, those three verses? It's the ruling function. Let them rule over the flesh. Let them sub rule over the earth and so forth. Then he creates them. Then he says in verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The population growth is in the context of what? The first divine institution. See how these flow? They all are hooked together. Whoops. All these institutions are hooked together and the family is the way dominion spreads. Now, this is a very unromantic view. Okay, I'm not knocking the romantic side. The whole Bible book in the Bible written to the romantic side of the thing is called the Song of Songs. But we're not studying that right now. All we're trying to do now is to show that these institutions have an inherent, mutually supporting structure. 
responsibility and choice, marriage and family are all part of the way man grows and dominates. Now let's think about population control. Let's, because this is oftentimes uh, criticism against Bible Christianity, you know, Christians go around and they, they are responsible for all the world's ills because of overpopulation. Well now, let's just t take a, a common sense check here. Let's just stop a moment. When you were driving here tonight, lots of white all over the place, okay? Did you notice that we had quite a bit of acreage around here that isn't being used? I mean, that is being, it's property. But this country is far from being overpopulated. So that's the first observation. Most of the Earth's surface is not overpopulated. I dare say we do not have a population problem in Antarctica at the moment. We don't have a population in the Great Plains of Canada. Now let's think of something else. Let's think of some of the most overpopulated urban areas that are in the world today outside of our cities. Let's take some fresh views, foreign cities. Think of Singapore, Hong Kong. You realize there are more people per square foot in Hong Kong than there are in many ghettos in the United States? Now let's just ask ourselves the question, what is overpopulation? What is it? Can you define it? Is it a mere number or is it something else that's happening? It was told to me by a person who was an expert when I lived in Texas out in the Great Plains. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the local people there was a, quite a hobby, was history. And they pointed out to me a very interesting fact that studies have shown that before the uh, high plains of Texas uh, were colonized by the, the Spanish and the, and the early American settlers, it was largely overpopulated. You say, what? West Texas was overpopulated? Yes, it was. Because the people who lived there could not grow enough food to feed themselves. They were nomadic. They would go all over the place looking for buffalo, run the herds of buffalo over into the canyons, kill them all, and then eat about 2%, and all these buffalo are dead, and nothing else to eat. So they go on for 200 more miles somewhere else and pillage. And then there were some Indian tribes that were very good. The Navajos, for example, very agriculturally intensive. They never were overpopulated, never had a problem. So now, how we define overpopulation? Overpopulation, scripturally, comes out of this verse when men don't subdue. It's something like a ratio. Maybe some of you folks in economics can, can uh, sometime do studies on this. But some of the people who have worked with this actually think that overpopulation is some, could be expressed as a ratio, and, or as a number, and that is a, a, a density figure. That is, the number of people that can we adequately be supported on this area of land with the given technology available. And that's the key. And the given technology available is the degree of man's successful subduing the earth. So overpopulation is interrelated to all of this subduing. And birth control plays a role in that. Birth control itself, family growth itself, is part of the subduing process. Do we manage it or don't we manage it? China is making a big issue now. Of if you have more than one child, you've got a problem in China. Well, why have they got a problem in China? Because they've had stupid communism for the last 50 years and can't walk and chew bubble gum at the same time, leave alone grow plants. So naturally they've got an overpopulation problem. And a lot of the places have overpopulation problems because of sheer stupidity. Nothing to do with the number of people. It has to do with the degree of wisdom that is being used to subdue or not subdue. So. Let's go to Deuteronomy 21 for another control on the family. We've talked about the size of the family, but there's another trait to family. Let's, in fact, let's stop at Deuteronomy chapter 6 on the way. Those of you who are homeschoolers are familiar with this one. But the family, if you think about it, the family is our first school. It's our first church. 
It's our first socialization. It all starts in the family. And when Jesus Christ came into this world, what did he come to? He didn't come to the temple, did he? God didn't drop the baby in the temple. God dropped the baby in a family. And when God reveals himself, how does he reveal himself as the father of a family? So you see, these institutions are related, not just... So far are they from being mere social, arbitrary conventions. They are rooted not only into the structure of the universe, they are rooted into the very character of God. When God established a family, he was pre-anticipating revealing himself to man. So the whole institution itself is revelatory of the character of God. As, for example, New Testament picks up on the second divine institution, as you all know, Jesus Christ and the church, analogy to the husband and the wife. These are not arbitrary conventions. All right, one feature about the family. Notice in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verse... 6 and 7. Moses' mandate to the home. He says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now, how are they going to be on a society's heart? Because if you'll notice, he's talking plural. You, you're all's heart. Now, the word of God can't be on the society's heart if the unit of society doesn't get involved. And sure enough, what do you notice in the next verse? And you will teach them diligently to your sons, and you will talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, that doesn't mean just quoting Bible all the time. That means if you look carefully at that, you, it says, you will talk of them. And literally in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew preposition, baith, meaning you'll talk with them. Meaning that you talk in terms of the Word of God. Your whole intellectual outlook on life, your whole philosophical outlook on life in the family ought to be rooted on the Word of God. That's what they're saying. So no matter what the topic happens to be, from football to getting a job to swimming, that ought to be thought about in terms of the framework of Scripture. And that is how society gets controlled. But if the family breaks down and this function doesn't happen, society is in trouble very fast. Now, there were controls because obviously all the Mosaic law was given after the fall. So if you turn to Deuteronomy 21, you'll see some very severe controls were put on the family. Uh, This is so severe that if it were ever suggested today, uh, you would be a candidate for the funny farm, I am sure. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 21.18. Very startling, very provocative text. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, notice his mother is also used there, and when they chasten him, he will not ever listen to them or even listen to them, then his father and his mother will seize him Bring him out to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of the city... Now look what they're saying to this guy. This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now that's metaphorical. I mean, he might be a glutton and drunkard. That's maybe true. But the idea there is what is common to a glutton and a drunkard? What do they produce? Nothing. They're consumers. They don't do anything. They're parasites. This is an unproductive, useless product. Then what do they do in verse 21? All the men of the city will stone him to death, and so you will remove evil from your midst. Can you imagine that one put into the codes? Now, let's think about this for a minute. God is a merciful God. God doesn't take pleasure in this. But if he is so severe in the Mosaic Law Code to control delinquent products of homes, why do you think he had such drastic measures? The answer is because God says that must be protected. 
and I will protect it if I have to use capital punishment to protect it. The family is so crucial to social structure. And it's, 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 it's interesting. I just, while I was working on this, I came across these two articles in Investor's Business Daily, and it's really amazing. Uh, one article here about two boys in Chicago, 11 and 12, were sentenced to indefinite state custody for dropping a five-year-old boy out a 14-story window. Their own youngster was being punished for not stealing for the older boys. Now, this is the crop that we're generating. And the whole article goes on to say... When children commit crimes, they jump in violence and worries police and, poly, and policymakers. And the point that they're saying here is, if we think we've got crime now, watch the crop that's growing now. A crop of kids who have been coming out of broken homes, know no authority, no conscience, no respect for anything, and the violence is getting worse with the younger and younger kids. It's frightening, because this is tomorrow's headline. And then we have another interesting article. Uh, this one is, is The Cost of Illegitimacy. And basically, I won't bore you with the details, but it comes down to the bottom line, is that you could almost handle a whole national deficit right now if we could solve the problem of illegitimacy. Because here's what happens. When you have illegitimacy, you have broken home. You have single-parent homes. Now, which, going back to these institutions, let's go back to the second divine institution. What do we say the second divine institution was structured to do to make subduing effective? Not just romantically, but also economically. It's a division of labor. Now, what happens when you have a family split? So you get a divorce. One parent goes one way, one parent goes the other way. Now what do we got? Now we've got two households that have to be sustained economically. So we've just halved our assets, folks. And we wonder why, oh, Jesus, the poverty level in this country is rising. The poverty level is rising because you're breaking up the second and third divine institutions which were meant to make it simple. So this is what I'm trying to say is that God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. If these are indeed structural institutions and not arbitrary conventions, then when they unravel, there's an economic price to pay, a horrendous price to pay socially. And what we've tried to do is have government programs patch it up. And you see, if we're to be thinking scripturally, the only way, it really is a terrifying, hopeless thing apart from the Lord. How do you fix this? Humpty Dumpty's broken. How do you fix it? The government can't be daddy to everybody. That's paternalistic government. That's where we get into socialism, welfareism, statism, because we want the government to do it. I mean, somebody has to do something. Let the government do it. It's exactly what happens. The government will always step into the vacuum. And it never can solve the problem because it wasn't designed to do that. Point in, in being here. Do you notice that before the fall there's no government? Do you realize that the civil institution of authority and capital punishment, police and military, aren't introduced into the scripture until Genesis 9? Now, pray tell, what happened between Genesis 1 and 8? Without any police agency, how did they ever make it? Well, they didn't make it. That's why they had to have it after the fall. But prior to the fall, do you see any policing function there? No policing function there. were designed in a perfect environment. That's why we have problems with them in an imperfect environment. Not that they're impractical. It's just a commentary that we're trying to make institutions originally created in a perfect environment function in an imperfect environment. We've got problems. So God comes along and helps us later on, you'll see, with government. And this passage I just got through showing you in Deuteronomy 21 is one of the ways in which government power steps in not to destroy the family, but to help preserve the family. I love to, to bring this one up. Every time we get somebody that's worried about child abuse, um, not that child abuse isn't real, by the way, I don't mean to diminish it, but this is, as you will agree, quite a provocative passage to take someone to that thinks that way. All right, so these are the three divine institutions. And with that, we have completed 
uh, an exposition of man and this man side of the man-nature distinction. So I want to spend the rest of the time tonight on page 42 and following on describing nature. And to start there, I want to take you back to Genesis 2 for a moment. And if you look at Genesis 2.18... Thinking in terms of nature and thinking in terms of that which is not man, just the rocks, the trees, the animals, stars, just think in terms of nature. And we'll draw a little atom here as an isolated soul. Now when you look at Genesis 2, God is training him not only to find his wife, but he's also telling him something about nature. You'll notice in the last part of verse 20 of Genesis 2, after he goes through this grand experiment where the animals, nature is brought to Adam for examination and study and naming. The net result of the experiment in the last clause of verse 20 is, what? That he can't find anything suitable as a helper. And the word ether, we now know, means a personal helper. In other words, dogs and cats are fine companions, but they're not ethers. They're not persons. Now, you may think your dog has a personality, but we're talking in terms of God, uh, theomorphic personality. All right? And there's nothing there in nature. Nature is impersonal in that regard. And this is one of the fundamental differences we want to make, and we want to make it very strong in our time. And the reason, as you can imagine, we have got to make the man-nature distinction so firm, so solid, that we'll never be tempted to cross it. Evolution tries to cross it. That's the whole structure of evolution. But in nature we have the situation where nature cannot be a companion to man. You may love the snow. I mean, one of my favorite things, go out there and take a magnifying glass with cold snow and look at the crystal structure. You know, you can look at every little snowflake and you can get a pattern, this books that show you the different pattern, and you can describe the thermal environment of the snowflake as it fell from its... The whole history is in the structure of the crystal that you can find there. Fascinating. But the snowflakes aren't a person. They can't talk to me. They have no conscience. Nature is silent. So let's turn to uh, Psalm 19 and we'll see then how nature is to talk to us. What we want to do as we approach this tonight is think maybe a little more deeply than we have thought ever before. How is it that nature being dumb and I use the word dumb in a, in a technical way. Dumb, originally, by the way, that word dumb didn't mean stupid. Dumb meant you couldn't speak. Nature is dumb. How can speechless nature then glorify God? Now, in Psalm 19, it says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the works of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth, and so forth. That's talking about what theologians call general revelation. That nature does somehow speak to us, but not as a person would speak to us. So here's Adam, or you, or me, and we're surrounded by nature. There's something in nature that calls to our hearts. You can see a beautiful sunset. You see beauty in nature, whatever it strikes you. And you may turn poetic, you may turn scientific, but it'll have a re response in your heart. Now what we want to do tonight, in just a few minutes we have left, is we want to think a little bit about how God glorifies himself in nature. And the reason I want to spend a little bit of time in this is because we flippantly say this. You know, we'll read the Bible, oh, God, nature glorifies God. But if you were really pinned down and asked to defend that statement, what do you mean 
God, the nature glorifies God. How does nature glorify God? Then maybe you'd have to do a little backpedaling. So that's what we want to talk about. And I want to use an illustration because Paul, many times in evangelistic speeches, as we said earlier, uh, he refers to nature as glorifying God. So I don't think there's any doubt about it. But what we want to do is I want to use an illustration. This was done by a pharmacology professor who um, is, a, is a great uh, apologist for the Christian faith throughout Europe, Dr. E. Wilder-Smith. And what Dr. Smith is going to do here in this experiment is I want you to imagine yourself with some cards. Uh, on each card is either a dot or a dash. And we have a stack of these cards. And I ask one of you to come up here and you pick a card at random out of this stack of dash dots. And you take your card and you lay it down on the floor. And we, we all go through this process. Now, somewhere along the line, suppose that we have the following set of cards. Dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. Now, for those of you not radio hams or, or something, probably won't recognize that. But you'll recognize that there's something there that's not a random pattern. There's a pattern that you see there. So you may artistically think, oh, how cute. Three dots and a dash and three, three dots. That's, that's nice. It's a little triplet pattern. And so you recognize, at your level, you recognize, I see a pattern out of the chaos. Now, nature's like that. Nature provides patterns. We see the pattern in the snowflake. We see patterns in the way animals behave. We see patterns in the way the sun shines, the light patterns. We see all kinds of patterns. But here's the clinker. Let's suppose besides you being a little art artisty, so here's artsy. Okay. So artsy person looks down and they see a pattern. But let's suppose, in addition to being artsy, you also happen to know Morse code. Now, you look at that pattern and what does it tell you? It's the International Distress Call, SOS. Now, what allowed you to pick up that extra information that the artsy person alone didn't pick up out of that? Both of you saw a pattern. But the pattern had meaning to you. Now follow me just for a few minutes here. Just follow me. What made the difference? Let's think carefully. Was it something in the cards that made the difference? Was it something in the dots and the dashes that made the difference? No, because the dots and the dashes were the same to both the artsy person and the person who knows Morse code. Well then, why is one person able to look at that pattern and get the message? And another person looks at the same pattern, seizes a pattern there, but doesn't get the message. What is the distinguishing quality between number one and number two? The distinguishing quality is that number two knows the language. And he knows the language that has been agreed upon by people who send the message and people who receive the message. Now here's how nature glorifies God. Nature itself doesn't talk. Those cards didn't talk. They didn't get rise up off the floor and say, SOS, I need help. But yet the cards became a vehicle for a message that could have been put on them. The same thing in radio communication. Radio communication uses carrier frequencies. You have AM, FM, so forth. And a lot of transmission is like that. You have a carrier that is modulated. Those of you who have a computer, you know, it might be a modem, demodem, modem, M-O-D-E-M. Well, you know what that means? It means to modulate and demodulate. It means that the carrier between the two computers is changed. There's something put on the carrier. Well, it can't be a voice. Voices aren't put on the carrier. Only a pattern is put on the carrier. And so your computer, when it goes to talk to another one, modulates the telephone signal and lays on this pattern. And the pattern comes over here to somebody else's modem. The modem picks this thing up and picks up the pattern. But the electrons aren't language-speaking entities. The telephone wire isn't, a, isn't the entity that's doing the talking. Who's doing the talking? The one who put the message on at the time he modulated the frequency. That was the person that did it. And the message got through only because the other guy 
spoke the same language. They were both knowledgeable people speaking the same language, or shall we say, on speaking terms. Now let's push it further. We've looked at Psalm 19. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Now how can that be? Because you know as well as I do, you have friends who are unbelievers. They, they would deny that, wouldn't they? They'd say, oh, I can see pretty patterns in the heavens, but God doesn't speak to me out of the heavens. Come on. Where are you coming from? And you know people talk like that. Well, what's the difference? Here's the difference. The difference is that when our spirits are opened up by God's grace, we are once again put on speaking terms with a God who created those patterns. He can put His delightful things in the stars and we recognize them not just as a mere pattern, but we recognize them as His craftsmanship. We recognize the pattern as something having been put onto the molecules, shaping them, giving them color and beauty, as only our God can do. And because we are built and created to know Him, we demote them, so to speak. We modulate and demodulate the message. And nature does glorify God to some. But nature, while it originally could glorify God to all, this side of the fall does not glorify God to all. Men can be blind to the natural forces all around them. Why is that? For the same reason that the artsy person was blind to the message of the dots and the dashes. Because they have lost the language link with God. Now, how do we get the language link with God? Well, how do you learn Morse code? The, God, the sender and the receiver have to share a language. Where do we go to get language shared between us and God? When He speaks to us. Where does He speak to us? In His Word. Now, the point is that if we're not on speaking terms with the God of the book, we cannot see His glory in the God in nature. All we see is patterns that may be intriguing, they may be beautiful, but they don't speak to our hearts because we're not on speaking terms with Him. Now that's the idea then that the Bible presents of nature glorifying God. And that explains why it is that you can have a believer and an unbeliever look at the same pattern and come away with two different things. It has nothing to do with the fact that the stars look different, it has to do with how you read it. Whether you read it as the handiwork of a creator or the Darwinian product of sheer chance and natural selection. Next time, we're going to take this further and we're going to deal on page 44 and following. You'll see there's quite a bit of uh, material we have. If you, if you look at the handout tonight, if you have it, let me just go through it with you. Uh, we won't meet next week because I, I'll be out of town, but the week after that we'll meet. I want you to notice there's, there's a section here that is quite important. On page 44, uh, I start man's limited power over nature. What I'm dealing there with is to think about our dominion and how it's limited by God. Then on page 45, man's limited rights over nature. And of course, as tonight we touched on economics, once we hit that topic on page 45, you're going to deal with ecology and environmentalism. You, see, the, you can't study the Bible without banging up against all these issues. And that's what part of this whole course is to do, make you issue sensitive. Now if you come over to page 46, don't get depressed, don't get discouraged. But I'm going to present a case of using geometry there in page 46. It's quite easy, just read through it. But I'm dealing with the man's limited knowledge. And then we deal with experience and on page 48 we have a very critical chart. And page 48 is a chart that depicts the outer boundaries of all human knowledge that no matter who you are, with no matter what scientific precision instrumentation you have, you are bounded to that locale, the locale in the center of that graph. And we're going to discuss what that means when we start constructing a natural history, which is the last topic on page 48, a special limitation in constructing histories of nature. 
Now, we're not going to get into all the details of evolution. There are special texts and courses that do that. But I am going to point you to a key in all of it. So that's, what, that's where we're headed in this area of nature. It should give you the overall tools to handle yourself in, in these kinds of situations. Not all the details, because we don't have all the details. Um, someday, when, if we have time, I doubt during this hour we will have the time, but uh, I would like to sh introduce you to some materials for your home, uh, show you some videos you can get, some fascinating stuff as we go into this uh, that you can use to supplement this. Father, thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you do speak to us through your creation. May our hearts be opened to hearing your voice and seeing your letters written in the raw material of nature as you've created and shaped it. And you were the one who declared after you made it that it was very good. We appreciate you, Father, for your workmanship. In Christ's name, amen.